Good morning. Doing okay? All right, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our, our series in the book of John this morning. Uh, and we will uh, be in chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 3 to just kind of set up uh, where John is taking us this morning. So as you're turning there, I want to introduce myself. My name is uh, Jamin Roller, and you are uh, entering in. If you're a visitor here, you are entering in what has been a, a campus of the Village Church, and we are becoming Citizens Church. We're becoming our, our own church, and that's happening uh, more and more. We are, we are sprinting towards that more and more every day. And at Citizens Church, I am the lead pastor of teaching. And so it's a joy to be with you and a joy to welcome you. And if none of that made sense, there, there really is uh, a long and beautiful story behind all that I just said in terms of what God has been doing here as a church. And so would you uh, find me or another staff or a volunteer after if you'd love to hear that story, because we really would love to, to share that with you. John 13, starting in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Hear this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they had come from God and was going back to God. Let's pause for a minute. This section begins the last day of Jesus' life. Um, our days uh, here, they go midnight to midnight. In uh, Jewish days, they went sunset to sunset. And so the sun had already gone down when they're eating this dinner that we just heard about. By the time the sun would go down again, Jesus' body would be in the tomb. This is the last day of his life. And the last day of his life, before he raises again, obviously, uh, but on the last day of his life before the crucifixion, what he does is he spends time preparing his disciples to live in the world without him, but not just to live in the world without him. He spends much of the last day of his life preparing them to continue what he started. And so he's about to preach the longest Jesus sermon that's recorded in the Bible. And what he's doing is he's trying to prepare them for that. So let me just stop for a second and let me say out loud what John is just assuming in all of this that's actually easy to miss. Here's what he's assuming. That we know that when you become a believer... You are not just saved by God, but you are saved into a people and saved into a people who live in the world in a way that changes the world, just like Jesus did. So let me, let me try to explain it this way. I grew up in a Christian home and that meant a lot of things. It was really healthy, really Jesus-centered Christian home. One of the things it meant is that I accumulated a large collection of Christian t-shirts in my life. Uh, and some were great and some were cheesy. And then uh, a few of them... I remember these the most because a few of them actually missed something about Christianity in trying to be a Christian t-shirt. Let me give you an example. There was one shirt that said Lord's Gym on it. And it had a picture of this super ripped Jesus with the cross on his back doing push-ups. And uh, on the cross, it said the sin of the world. And then underneath the picture of Jesus, it said bench press this. <laughs> Now, um, I just don't see that in the Bible. Jesus, yes, he's in there, um, but he's not a bodybuilder, uh, and he's not white also, uh, and then the cross is in there for sure, but, but he's not like, in all seriousness, um, Jesus isn't conquering the cross. The cross is conquering him, and that's the point. 
Like uh, in being conquered by it, he conquers sin and death. Like Jesus' victory is on display, not in his strength. His victory is on display in his defeat, and then on the other side, he conquers death. Like the cross isn't chest and back day for Jesus, right? Now listen, if you, <clears throat> if you have that shirt, please don't be embarrassed. I have that shirt. In fact, you wear yours, I'll wear mine. We'll meet up at church later and listen to DC Talk together, right? <laughs> and boycott the Simpsons at the same time. Uh, the other one that I remember having that was really confusing to me um, was a, a shirt that just said Bible on it, B-I-B-L-E. And it was an acronym, and underneath it it said, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. So here's the story that that shirt is telling. Uh, salvation, like the work of God, it has as its ultimate goal, me in heaven. And so um, what all of this is about is all of this is just like these basic life principles that I should follow before I go up. And, and what it's saying is, is that the movement of God's story uh, and the movement of God's story in my life is me going up. And so the biggest problem with that acronym for the Bible is actually the story of the Bible and actually what it says in the Bible, the movement of God. Throughout the story, like if you actually read the B-I-B-L-E, the movement of God is not me going up, it's heaven coming down, it's God coming down. And what it is, is it's saying that um, the end of the story, if you read it, the end of the story is actually not me in heaven. The end of the story is me with Jesus on a restored earth for all of eternity, uh, an earth that he began the restoration of and an earth that I helped him restore. And here's, look, when Jesus prays, when he teaches us to pray, he says, when you pray, pray like this, when we all get to heaven. No, when you pray, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me tell you why that matters so much. Because Jesus does not just have plans for my life after I die. Jesus has saved me and placed me right where I am to continue what he has started, that the world around me might look different through me because of what he's done in me. So that is where Jesus is going with his disciples. Like this chapter and the following four are not basic instructions before leaving earth. This chapter and the following four chapters, Jesus is leaving and he's saying, you continue living out heaven here on earth. You continue pushing back the darkness like I have done my entire life. And I'm going to entrust you with that mission. And so these three verses that we just read tells us what Jesus's plan is for that. And it's beautiful. And it's so important. In the first verse, it said this, Jesus, knowing his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus comes into the world, John 1 tells us that, from the Father. Now he's going back to the Father, and the world is going to be different now than when he first came, and he's going to leave that with his followers. What's the plan? How's that going to happen? Love. Love is the plan. Having loved his own, he loved them till the end. That theme of love is what Jesus is going to trace throughout the next four chapters. In fact, uh, in the book, in the first uh, 13 chapters that we just read, the first 12 chapters, the word love is used six times. In this chapter and in the next four chapters, the word love is used 31 times. Listen, 
How is he going to take this small group of men and women and turn them into men and women who continue what the God-man has started? How is he going to do that? Love. How is he going to take us, this group of people with all different kinds of stories and all different places and all different backgrounds, how is he going to uh, deploy us to change Collin County? What's his plan? Love. Love is the plan. Like the distinct divine love of God that we first receive and then live out changes the world. Now, what we're going to find as Jesus washes feet is that that love is marked by two things. It's a love that descends and it's a love that cleanses. But before that, I want to acknowledge something. Now, I didn't plan this. I, I wish I could take credit, but I stumbled into this. There's this merging that's happening right now. There is this like intertwining that's happening between um, where we are in this series in the Gospel of John and where we are right now as a church. What I mean by that is this. We are in a sermon where Jesus teaches his disciples what the church should be while we are sprinting toward becoming our own church. And that's colliding right now. We didn't plan it that way. It just happened. And what I see that as is I see that as a gift from God that will afford us a beautiful opportunity to be reminded of some things. And, and, and as we're making this change, to just ask the question, are we marked by that love? And as we ask that, and as we uh, double down on that, like if that takes the root of who we are, uh, we will be protected, friends, from becoming less than what God has called us to. Let me say it like this. If five years from now, we have missed it. Let me tell you how we will have missed it. We will have missed it in one of two ways. Uh, there are two pools right now on the evangelical church, especially pools that are on the, the evangelical church that exists in like a Western affluent culture. One of those pools uh, is towards church as a social business. Uh, and that's a real danger for us where we are. And what I mean by that is like in a world where when you Google a church, one of the first things that pops up are all the Yelp reviews. Uh, in a world where uh, people take the prayer cards and write comments on the back on how to improve the service, which I don't know, maybe it's a prayer request, but uh, in a world where pastors function more like CEOs uh, and function more like celebrities building buildings and growing budgets and uh, managing their own brands, right? What we could so easily become, where we could so easily drift, Citizens Church, where we could so easily drift is simply us as leaders catering to our target market, like uh, identifying who we really want in the building and then making sure we offer religious goods to religious consumers. That's the pull. And if, and if you're happy, then I'm happy. And then Citizens Church becomes something that you go to, not something that you belong to. And we could get there. We could do that. Like we've got the resources, we've got the gifts. And what a waste of time that would be. What a waste of time. My worst nightmare uh, is snakes. Other than that, my worst nightmare <laughs> as a pastor is not pastoring an empty church but pastoring a church where the building is full of people and the church is empty of love, full of programs and empty of any real power, full of the kinds of things religious people can manufacture and empty of the kinds of things that only God can do. What a waste of time. Or we could get pulled into the other drift where the church is, and I don't know what to call it, um, where the church is just the politicized church or the angry church. I think it's one and the same. Let me just describe it. When we become a people that just uh, joins the outrage of the age, where we become a people 
um, where we are screaming about all that we oppose and silent about all that we embrace, where we become a people that are offended at everything and convicted about nothing. And we're always responding to whatever controversy is sweeping the headlines. And then what I do as a pastor is, is I just learn what social buttons to push, which make most of you happy. And then I stay away from everything that's controversial. And the result of that is that we will grow ethnically and politically and socially homogenous. And then at that point, it's easy to pretend that we love one another because we look around at everyone and we agree with one another. And so the love is never tested never tested. Look, if any of that happens and we look down the road and like that divine distinct love does not mark us, if it does not exist among us at Citizens Church, I'm not just saying at that point we will be a bad church. I'm saying at that point we are no longer a church. As Paul says, if I have all things and have not love, I am nothing. And we all want more for us than that. I know you, I know your heart than that. And I love us, and I want more for us than that. Also, I don't really have a backup plan to pastor. Like, I've got a very uh, specific set of skills that don't really translate anywhere else, and so I I need this to go well. Here's the good news. (laughs) The good news is that that's not at all true about us now. At all. You love well. You serve well. Like, you're here, and you've waited together with us through this transition because you have a vision for church that's bigger than preference and comfort. I said this a couple months ago. I learned to love Jesus in my home. I learned to love the Word of God at Bible College, and God taught me to love the people of God at TVC Plano. And it's because of this distinct love that is just present among you. So I say all that to say this. Let today and the next few weeks walking through Jesus' teaching, let that serve to bolster what is already true about us. Here's how we see it in the passage. The divine distinct love of God given in Jesus, it does two things. It descends and it cleanses. And then we do two things. We receive that and then we love like that. Look at verse four. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John has already in the first three verses reminded us that Jesus is God. Jesus has come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. And so all of this action is something that we are to see God doing. Now that's always true with Jesus. That's emphasized here. So let me make it this, the point this way. It's God descending to wash feet. They're around this table, and here's how it worked. The table is just a few feet off the ground, and so you didn't sit in a chair and eat dinner. You actually laid on the ground and ate dinner, and so you're leaning on one arm, and then out of respect for everyone, your feet were going away from the table. Uh, And now everyone's clean, but because they walked there in sandals or barefoot on dirty roads, their feet were probably in bad shape. And so hospitality demanded that someone would come around as the feet are facing away from the food and wash the feet. And here is the social structure. Here's how it worked. You've got at the height of the room, the guest of honor. And below that, you have the host. Below that, you have the other guests. Below that, you have a master servant. Below that, you have other servants. And then below that, you have the lowest servant. Guess who washed feet? The lowest servant. 
It was a demeaning act. In fact, the lowest servant most often was not even a Jew because they believed foot washing was too demeaning for Jews. And then that's the order in which the feet were washed. The guest of honor got washed first, the host, and then the other guest, and then on down the line. And so here's this. Um, The guest of honor is at the center and he is the one who gets his feet washed first. And then the lowest servant, he stands on the outskirts of the room, doesn't approach the table. He just hangs out around the feet. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, who's at the center, moves to the outskirts. Jesus, who is uh, at the highest place, moves to the lowest place. He descends to the lowest place, right? But that's not the whole story. Because who is it? It's God. He came from God, he's going back to God. So really, he's not just guest of honor, he's creator of the world, like worthy of all glory. So there's a whole other layer that he descends from, lowest servant, other servants, master servant, guests, host, guest of honor. And then above that, who? God. And what does he do? He descends to the lowest place in the room, picks up a towel, washes feet. One of the church fathers describes it this way. It's beautiful. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped himself in a towel. He who pours waters into rivers and pools poured water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of the disciples. God is on the ground. He descends to the lowest place. Why? Why is he doing that? Because that's where the ones he loves are. He descends to where uh, the people whom he loves, he descends to where they are and he does it so that he might love them and cleanse them. He just explains it to Peter this way. Look with me at verse six. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. The love descends and it cleanses. Throughout the Bible, sin is described as dirt. Sin is described as being unclean. Sin is described as being unacceptable. David in Psalm 51 prays what? Create in me a clean heart. Wash me that I might be whiter than snow. Jesus tells Peter, what I'm doing, you don't understand, but you will understand. He's washing their feet. Follow me. He's washing their feet as a precursor to the cross. The foot washing is this parable of what will be accomplished in the cross. In the foot washing, he descends to clean. In the cross, he descends that he might cleanse. So uh, what the cross will be for him What they're saying, what the cross will be for them, like you don't get it now, but you will. Rome crucified people not just to punish them, but to dehumanize them. Rome crucified people to strip their humanity away and to strip their dignity away. And so what Jesus is saying is, if at the table he moves from the center to the outskirts and he assumes the posture of the lowest servant in the room, on the cross he descends from the height of heaven to the depth of earth and assumes the posture of the lowest human in history. Why? to cleanse, to forgive sins. Paul says it this way in Philippians, have this mind in you which was also in Christ, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
he humbled himself. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a love that descends to the lowest places. And then what's so staggering about it is it cleanses who? Only those who are worthy. Like only those that he's going to get a lot back from. No, no, no. It cleanses those who least deserve it. We have to make this point. John has already made it. Who's in the room? Judas. Who does he descend to? Judas. The ones who betrays him. Who else is in the room? Peter. The one who denies him. Who else? The other disciples. The ones who, who run away. Okay, so a traitor, a liar, and a bunch of cowards. Which ones get their feet washed? All of them. All of them. Imagine with me, Jesus moves around the table, he gets on the ground, and he holds the feet of a disciple, and he knows these feet will run. They will not stand with me. They will run when I need them to stay. And then he moves to another, and he grabs Peter's feet, and he says, these feet will sift. These feet will anxiously move around a courtyard, and every time they stop, they will deny me. They will lie. And when I needed him to tell the truth, he will lie about me. Then on to another, and he grabs the feet of Judas. And these feet who have been a feet of my friend will soon be the feet of my enemy. These feet will leave this very dinner and walk to the temple and will exchange years of love and will exchange years of teaching and years of time and years of relationship and will give all of that up and will get back 30 pieces of silver and a guilt that will kill him. The next time I see these feet, there will be a mob behind them. And what does he do? He skips him. No, he washes his feet, descends and cleanses, even those who don't deserve it. Friend, that's true for them, that's true for you. Jesus descends wherever you are and cleanses you, Christian. Like if you could just place yourself here and you just place your feet in his hands and then fill in the story with whatever, whatever sin haunts you, whatever denial moment, whatever secret, what would he do? He would wash your feet. He would cleanse you. That, that's what the cross is all about, descends to the lowest places and then extends that cleansing love to those who uh, deserve it the least. How? Like, how does he love like that? How, how can love be so imbalanced and still be so secure? Well, John, John tells us, hear this. The love of God is for you, but it is not from you. Praise God. Let me put it another way. And I have just been mulling over this so much the last month. You are the object of God's love, but you are not the source of that love. Um, Jesus is not loving these men because of what he's gotten from them. He's not loving them because of what he will get back from them. Jesus does not love you because of what he hopes to get back from you. How does it work? How does the love of God work in the economy of God? It comes from God. John says Jesus came from the Father. He's going back to the Father. What do the Son and the Father and the Spirit share? Love an unadulterated, uninterrupted, pure, undefiled, eternal love that is secure and it exists among them. And what Jesus does is he brings that love from the source of God himself and makes you the object of that love. You know what that means? It means that he's loving us from a source that is never threatened and never runs out. And that love then is not contingent on how lovable the object 
Praise God. Like the love God has for you as the object of his love is as secure as the love God shares within himself. It's why adoption is the metaphor that Paul uses because it just puts this in an illustration that we can understand. Like imagine God as a family, a healthy, perfect family. And there is love that the father and son and spirit share and the home is healthy. And I'm not healthy enough to be in that home. I'm not, I am not uh, pure enough. I'm not fit to be in that home. I'm dirty, I'm flawed, and I'm unclean. And Jesus descends in love. And Jesus cleanses us in love to bring us into that family to share the love that already existed, takes what was already there and makes you the object of that love. And it's so strong and so secure that it begs to be shared. Now, would you hear me? If we could just get this, Because so much struggle in the Christian life is that we operate under the lie that in order to receive God's love, we have to be both object and source. He loves me because, and then you fill in the blank. And then fill in the blank with something that we contribute. And let me ask, is it ever enough? As it works out in your mind, as you have the internal conversation, doesn't it always sin around you? Doesn't it always end up making you the source of the love? Like, I don't believe like I should, or I don't um, have faith like those around me, and I don't uh, struggle well like others do, or I still struggle, and I should be done struggling. And so, God, if there is any love there between us, it's not very strong because I'm not giving you enough reason. It's, it's like a child who's adopted into a family and then believes the rest of their life is about proving to mom and dad that adopting them was a good idea as if that's what motivated mom and dad in the first place. Look, if you are both the source and the object of God's love, you do have to work for it, but it's not true. You are the object, but not the source, which means all you have to do is receive it. This is the conversation that Peter and Jesus have. Peter in verse eight says, you shall never wash my feet. I don't deserve it. You're too great. I'm too low. And what does Jesus say? He's not annoyed. He's not, hey, Peter, sit down. God told me to do this, right? That didn't happen. He engages with Peter and says, look, brother, if I don't cleanse you, you have no share with me. That word share is inheritance language. It's family language. If I don't come to you, you can't come to me. If I don't descend to you and cleanse you, then you cannot come. And what is Jesus pleading with? What's the why behind it? Jesus wants to be with him. He wants relationship with him. He's not just teaching him something that's theologically true. He's coming to him and saying, if this doesn't happen, we can't continue to be what we've been. And he wants that between them. And then Peter, I love that, uh, him, just how honest he is. He changes his tone real quick. He's like, oh, okay, well, if I don't have any part of you, then how about like a whole bath? Can I just dive in and just get all of it, right? And what happens is, is the fear that he had, that he does not deserve the love, turns into fear that he's going to lose it once he gets it. Isn't that not the gamut of the Christian struggle in terms of where we stand with God? I don't deserve it. And then if I can believe that I have it, surely I'm going to lose it. And Jesus, when he says, look, you know, the one who's had the bath doesn't have to bathe, but just be cleansed. What he means by that is once you are cleansed, you're cleansed once and for all, once and for all. It's a one-time exchange. It's why we sing like we do. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, past tense, forever complete. Christian, he's done that for you. He's descended to you. That's the love of God that we receive. Look with me at verse 12. He's gonna turn the conversation. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, 
He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he tells them, just imagine being them, wash the feet, and then they sit down, and he says, love like this. Now, we can't miss the order. The first thing they get is not the command. The first thing they get is the love. Receive it, and then extend it, and then love like that. If he just commands without loving them first, they have law, but not the love. Uh, they have a standard without the resources to meet it, which is every religion. If all he does is command, it's like telling a starving man to go serve food to other starving men without first feeding him. And what Jesus knows is that they cannot give what they don't possess. And so he loves them and he pours that love on them and then says, go and love like that. And so here's where we come back to what we said at the very beginning of our conversation. This love is received, but it's not just for us. This love is received by us. It goes through us to the world around us so that the love of God, the love of heaven transforms earth. Look, This is where we've got a shot, guys. This is where we, as Citizens Church in Collin County, just have a real shot to make a difference. To be a people, think about this, to be a people who regularly descend in love to serve others, how different would that make us? How distinct would that make us? Think about your experience of the world just the past seven days. Are people regularly descending in love to those around them? You seen a lot of that? No. What's everyone trying to do? Everyone's trying to ascend. Everyone's trying to ascend in order to get significance and meaning and value. We're trying to accumulate servants, not serve. We're trying to climb ladders, not descend to floors, right? We, uh, or at least, at the very least, we're maybe just making sure that we get the credit we deserve and are seen in ways that we want to be seen. That comes out even in just our thinking is, don't these people know who I am? Don't these people know what I've done? If they did, I would get more credit than I'm getting, right? And if everyone is always maneuvering to get credit they deserve and the treatment they deserve, if everyone is trying to ascend, where is love on display? More than that. Friends, we follow a descending God who descended to us in love and then calls us in love to descend to those around us. Like, no matter how high up we might get, no matter how much we might accumulate, if the God that we follow is on the ground, how could there ever be an act of love that's beneath us? If the God we follow is on the ground, how could there ever be an act of service that's beneath us? And would you hear this? I think, gosh, I think maybe why many of us don't experience closeness with God in our lives is because we're unwilling to go where he is. If he's on the ground and I'm honest, I would rather stay up here without him than have to descend to be with him. May it not be true. 
There will be nothing distinct in our lives if that's the case. Like in our homes, as a roommate, as a spouse, as a parent, in our jobs, in in calling, like descending into the burdens that are not ours. And what I love about this interaction is that what Jesus did was he surprised them them in his dissension. Nobody expected him to wash feet. They expected him to teach like he had done in the past. And so what if that was just the goal? Like the daily goal was I'm going to surprise someone today by descending when they expect something else. By descending in love, when they expect something else from me. Um, we have a family in our church that's moving, the Pearsons, Chris and Kim Pearson. Uh, they are a longtime members here, like in Plano, serving the people of Plano um, and loving the people here before it was even a campus. So Kim's been uh, teaching a, a Bible study out of her home since uh, long ago. And they are moving uh, to Nashville because God is leading them into exile, I think is what's going on. <laughs> Uh, there was a dinner Friday night to celebrate them and to just say goodbye to them. And, and as the plates cleared, the dinner moved on and we just began to toast them. And so uh, someone would stand up and just share who they have been. And as I sat there just kind of absorbing it all, I, there was a thread, a very simple thread throughout each toast. And it was just this simple, you did and you didn't have to. You did and you didn't have to. <laughs> like uh, you welcomed me into your home. You did that, and you didn't have to. You walked with me through a difficult season, and when I thought for sure you'd run out of patience, you stayed, and you didn't have to. Like you encouraged me, and you gave me your time, and moment after moment where you just surprised me with love, and you didn't have to. And what we were all saying in one way or another, what we were all saying is you descended into my life. Over and again, when I least expected it, what you did was you picked up a towel, and you washed my feet. Metaphorically, and that's different. It's a distinct, divine love. And and as they are leaving a place to go to another, what was said about them is that through you, through you, this place knows more of God's love. Like through you, this place looks a little bit more like heaven because it's experienced the love of God that came out of your life. And Carrie and I drove home and, and I just thought, I think that's the mark for all of us. Like the test of living as God's people under God's love in God's world is that when you leave a place, do you get that dinner? Like when you leave a place, are we living and loving in such a way that, um, that others will stand and testify you descended over and again into my life? And we don't look, we don't, that doesn't happen by trying to ascend above one another. That happens by descending on the ground where God is. And then our love cleanses. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we wash away people's sins. That's Jesus's job. It gets really, really awkward when we try to be that in people's lives. But uh, what I mean by that is when we love when it's least deserved, it points people to the source of that love, which is God. That means we love people as objects of our love without expecting them to be the source of that love. That's why how we love others is just the best indicator of if we're receiving love from God. The norm, like the economy of relationships right now is to love people as both the source and the object of love, meaning I will love them, but that love is pregnant with expectation that it's gonna come back to me a certain way. Uh, And so here's what it's produced. It's produced a climate that says this, hate your enemy, tolerate your acquaintances, and kind of like your friends. And that's it. 
and, and keep your guard up against everyone because your friends are one step away from becoming your acquaintances. And keep your guard up because your acquaintances are one wrong move away from, from becoming your enemy. And so relationships have become so fragile. Like I am looking to you and I'm saying, I will love you if you give me enough to make loving you worth it. And the consequence, like how that's deteriorating relationships is it's making relationships super insecure and it's making us so easily offended. Like I am always keeping these running accounts uh, uh, and these running records of all I've done for you and then all that you've done for me. And I'm always asking, are those accounts balanced? Because I won't be taken advantage of. That's the last thing I'll be. And this is why we're just so offended all the time. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean sinned against. There's a difference. When you're sinned against, you can take a Bible verse and you can put it on someone's actions. They lied, they slandered, and here's what that looks like. Here's how the Bible explains it. Offense, most often, is not when I take a Bible verse and put it on someone's actions, but when I take my insecurities and I place them on someone's intentions, which I don't know, which I don't know for sure. And so they went to dinner without me and that means they're trying to exclude me because they don't love me. I'm offended. Uh, they never say anything about all my work, which means they don't appreciate what I do because they don't love me and I'm offended. And I fill in the gaps with my insecurity and then I treat the person with coldness and then I talk to everyone else except the person about my hurt and then friend turns into acquaintance. Acquaintance turns into enemy. And here's the point, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you have been uh, hurt in all the ways and you have been mistreated in all the ways. Maybe the accounts are way out of balance. Maybe that's not you at all and maybe all that sounds really petty. Here's the point. As those who have received love from God, we do not love to get love back. We love just to give the love we've received from God. And that's different. Like the question is not, is it fair to me? The question is, am I loving the way God has loved me? It's not fair to him. Like, meaning I will care most about what my love is accomplishing in their life. Is it showing them Jesus? Not, am I getting a good return on my investment? That's different. And who will I love like that? Well, my friends and everyone else. The bar of, is not the love of God helps you coexist with people you like. The love of God sends you in the world, not just to love your friends, but even your enemies. Jesus holds the feet of both the Johns and the Judases in his life. And so do we. And so do we. And if we can receive that, and if we can love like that, it will change our little slice of world because it points people to the love that's not in us, but a source of love that will cleanse them. One of the clearest pictures I've ever heard of this other than Jesus is in the life of a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom lived during the Holocaust. She was a Christian who helped hide Jews after the Nazi armies occupied the Netherlands where she lived. And they had a hole in the wall and they would hide them in that hole and they called it the hiding place. They were betrayed by a neighbor and she was eventually taken to a concentration camp. Uh, and after years, of, uh, after years of just unspeakable suffering, she's released. And she enters into this world that's completely different than when she went into the concentration camp and she doesn't know how to exist in the world. And so what she does is she looks around at all the other people that have hurt like she's hurt and all the other people that have suffered like she's suffered and she just ministers to them. And as she ministers to them, helping them heal, she realizes that the only way to actually get healing is to be able to love those who were their captors. And so she starts preaching that message of love and forgiveness, and she's invited all around the world to preach that message of love and forgiveness, and eventually she's invited into the heart of Germany to preach that message of love and forgiveness. And she's preaching that 
uh, at a church. And as she leaves the church, she runs into one of her prison guards from the concentration camp. And I'll spare the details of all that he was responsible for, but she runs into him, and here's what she says about that interaction in her biography. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people of the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Do you see it? Like, uh, I don't have it. I don't have the love. I don't have the forgiveness. I don't have it in me to love the one who wronged me so much. But God, I'm not the source. You are. I'm the object of your love, and he is the object of your love. And so to the one who wronged me so much, can you show me that kind of love, and can you extend that to this man? And so she loves this man because the love of God is received by her, and through her, God begins to heal the world around her. After the Holocaust, puts her, gives her his love right in the middle of just some of the most unspeakable evils that have ever plagued human history. And in that, she's like Jesus. And in that, she continues his mission. Citizens Church, that's what we've been trusted with. The God who descends to us, the God who cleanses us, has called us together to live out that love that we receive. And if we live that out, That won't make us a social business catering to the religious whims of religious people. That won't make us just one more loud, angry voice among a chorus of loud, angry voices. That love that we receive and that that we share and that we live out, you know what that will make us? That will make us a church. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. I thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. I thank you that you are not the kind of God uh, that expects of us what you don't give to us. We We would just be crushed by that weight. And you lift it. And you lift it by over and again extending love, by making us the object of your love. And you are the unshakable source of that. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. And we worship you for that. That's true here among these people. I know the faces and I know the stories. And I know the way that love is pouring into the lives of so many in the room and coming out of those lives. And and praise you, God, for that. Would you just bolster us in that as we've been obedient to move forward in what you've called us to. We love you. Amen.